I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, I'll be reading the whole chapter. Exodus 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well." Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's bow in prayer. Father, would you please instruct us from your holy word? Soften our hearts to receive what you have for us. Enlarge our view of you 
how great you are. What a mighty God we do serve. May your word speak to our hearts and fan into flame a passion of worship for you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a a long introduction prepared for you, and I'm sure you're excited to hear that I scrapped it. (laughs) This text is so rich. Let me just say that our God is a delivering God. He is a God who looks on his people and works to save them. Exodus is a book about deliverance. Really, the first half of the book is all about the God who delivers his people who are in trouble. Every human being needs deliverance. Not necessarily in the sense of being delivered from some sort of physical malady. But we know the scripture teaches that every single human being, save Jesus Christ, is guilty of sin and needs salvation from our sin. We need a God who rescues us from his wrath and from eternal hell. This text is here to help remind us that we have a delivering God, a saving God. This is for everyone in the room. Do you know Christ? Do you know the salvation that he gives No, many of you do. If you do, then this text is here to remind you that our God has always been a saving God. It's who he is. And be encouraged about the great works that God has done on your behalf as you look back at the great works he did in the history of Israel. Maybe sitting and thinking, you know Christ, you know his salvation, but you don't feel that God has come through through for you in any meaningful way lately may feel like he has saved you from eternal wrath, but you don't know his saving grace here and now. You haven't met with him recently. You haven't seen him work on your behalf. This text is for you as well. Because it shows a God who is always working and never stops working for his people. And many times the way that he is working is behind the scenes, preparing for just the time that you will see his deliverance. Some of you may be wondering if God would rescue you. You don't know him in a saving way. You wonder, would God do anything for me? Would he intervene in any meaningful way in my life? Would God really meet me, the God who made the universe? Would he come to intervene in my life? If that's the case, let this passage speak to you and show you a God who saves and comes to deliver his people. The situation here in Exodus chapter 2 is, of course, explained for us by Exodus chapter 1. The situation is that the people of Israel are in the land of Egypt. They prospered there. They grew into a great many people But there was the king, Pharaoh, who looked on this great people as a threat to his power and a threat to his own people. And so he set out to really subdue the Israelites 
He oppressed them with great slavery and oppression. He sought to eliminate the next generation of male Hebrew children by enlisting the Hebrew midwives to destroy any male children that were born, but the Hebrew midwives resisted. And then he sets his people to go and execute by exposure all of the Hebrew male children. He says at the end of Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, that Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The Pharaoh has created this pogrom that looks for the annihilation of the next generation of Hebrew male children. But as we look through this text, you see that every punch that Pharaoh tries to throw God is not far behind with the counterpunch. It's actually a little bit different analogy. Uh, in our home, we occasionally like to watch Wiley E. Coyote and uh, the Roadrunner. And if you've ever seen that cartoon, you know how it works. The coyote is always out to get the Roadrunner, is always scheming of ways to get the Roadrunner. And usually he involves some sort of form of dynamite that he sets out in the path of the Roadrunner that is set to explode right as the bird crosses the path. Of course, the bird runs right past the dynamite, and the coyote goes out to find out what's wrong, and that's the precise moment that the dynamite explodes. It's a bit what happens here with Pharaoh. He tries to set up these clever schemes to eliminate the Hebrews, but it actually turns out to backfire against him. He goes to look at the dynamite, and just that moment, it explodes in his face. We see God's hand all over these events while there is a human king trying to eliminate a group of people we see that there is a divine king who is working relentlessly to spare his people. This book of Exodus, again, is a book that presents to us God as a delivering God. And I want to present to you from this chapter 2 of Exodus just some features of the kind of deliverance that God brings about. So first, in chapter 2, we'll see that God provides a deliverer through his providence. God provides a deliverer through his providence. When God provides deliverance in Scripture, there is someone who is leading the charge. It's a personal deliverance. God's deliverance is personal, and so he provides a person to do the delivering. In this case, in the book of, Mo- in the book of Egypt, it's Moses. And Moses comes to the scene during this period of time in Israel's history where there's this edict of terror from King Pharaoh and the systematic destruction of the male Hebrew infants. How often we see in world history some despotic tyrant rise up to try to eliminate a group of people with brutality. But in this case, this tyrant has chosen the wrong people to destroy For the Israelites, they have this sickening edict that they have to live with that any male child born to them them, is going to be eliminated by exposure in the Nile. That is, they're to be drowned. 
They have to endure this gut-wrenching policy, the destruction of the fruit of the womb, which Scripture calls a reward, but Pharaoh just sees as a nuisance and something to get rid of, and so he wants to kill babies. How often have children been looked on as an impediment to somebody's success? And in Pharaoh's case, he wants to kill them so that he can continue his reign of power. But God thwarts this edict by providing a deliverer precisely through the edict. We have this scene in chapter 2 that presents to us these, this married couple, a husband and a wife, a man from the house of Levi, and he takes as a wife a Levite woman. And of course, the backdrop to this command is that this edict has come out, or this union is that this edict has come out, and so this child that they have is going to have to be eliminated. But when the mother sees the child that is, she has conceived and now given birth to, she sees that he's a fine child. Any mother who's worth her weight gives birth to a child and sees that their child is a fine child. No real mother, no true mother, takes her child in her arms and says, wow, that baby's ugly. (laughs) They have an instant bond and love for the child. She sees he was a fine child, but this is more than just a mom having a delight in her son. The word that's used for fine is the same word that's used for good in the beginning of Genesis, when the Lord looked on his creation and saw that it was tov, good. When the mother looks at Moses, she sees that he was tov, he was good. A reminder that this child is a creation of the Lord doesn't mean that Moses was without sin, he was a descendant of, Abraham, of Adam, and we'll see that he would make the Lord angry and that he would, by sin, not be allowed into the promised land. But this mom sees in this child a particular gift from God, not someone to be drowned in the Nile. And so this mother, as long as she could, hid the child And while this text presents to us this story with an economy of words, you have to let yourself imagine for a moment the agony that would have been in that mother's heart. The Bible is no stranger to suffering, and even though it writes at a fast pace, it doesn't say that we ought not to stop and ponder what is going on here. You have a mother who looks on her baby boy and wants to save his life. And for three months, she's working to keep this child from being eliminated. And you can imagine the ache that would be in her heart, knowing that one day this baby is going to be bigger than just her arms can hold, and it's going to be evident that they have this child that they've been hiding. And some Egyptian is going to find out about this, and they're going to have to kill this child. And so she hides this baby for three months, but eventually that day that was dreaded most likely by this mother and father comes to pass. They can't hide him anymore. And so the mom 
does this act where she creates this little boat. It's literally the word ark. She builds a box, the same word that is used for that box that Noah built that saved Noah and his family from the flood is the same word that is used for this baby's little boat made of papyrus reeds that are glued together by pitch to make it not to be sunk. So she follows through with this edict by putting baby Moses in the Nile, but in such a way that he has a chance. What other options does she have? What can she do? She's straining at all the options and comes up with this and puts the baby in the water, not to die, but to have some chance at life. Place it among the reeds by the riverbank, it says in verse 3. And now we see the continuance of God's invisible hand working through this time. Because God has been working from the start of this. He's been working in such a way as to provide a mother that cares about this child and wants to make sure that this baby is safe. But now it brings it to the next level where this baby is in the water, in this uh, basket, and look who comes on the scene. Verse 5, or sorry, verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. That's most likely Miriam. We'll meet her later in Exodus. And in verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And if you're reading this passage for the first time, your heart might start pounding, as that sister's heart must have been pounding in those moments because of all the people in the world who might see that baby, you don't want it to be someone from Pharaoh's household. Because Pharaoh is the one who issued the edicts to have the babies killed. And now Pharaoh's own daughter is out there right next to the baby. And you might be thinking, please don't let her see this. Please don't let her see this baby. You have to smile at what happens. She comes down to bathe at the river. And the young women are likely walking along the bank just to protect her privacy. Some movies portray it as there's crocodiles all over the place. Uh, it's, it's not like that at this point in the Nile. She's there to bathe. And she saw that basket. And she sent the servant woman, verse 5, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. And again, up to this point, you think, this baby's a goner. There's no way. There's no way. This is Pharaoh's own daughter. And yet, at this moment, we see one of those but God moments where God intervenes in such a way that it's unmistakably his providence that has arranged the circumstances to work out this way because this daughter of Pharaoh is no cruel-hearted woman. She took pity on the child and is filled with compassion on him even though she acknowledges this is one of the Hebrews' children. And it would have been just a word to say, go fetch the guard from my father's house and have him drown this baby. But instead, she doesn't. But you wonder how God has arranged these things. 
because she's acknowledged this is one of the Hebrews' children, and it's, it's almost as if everything's just hanging on a knife's edge here. It's just balancing by a thread. Which way is it going to go? How's this woman going to react? And that little sister is watching what's going on, and God bless that sister because she steps in at just the right moment and offers this solution. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And you can imagine Pharaoh's daughter just wrestling in her mind, should she or shouldn't she? Should she kill this baby or what should be done? And God provided the prudence of this little girl. I don't know how little she is, sorry, that's a subjective opinion. Of this girl to intervene at this moment and say with great wisdom, shall I go call a nurse for you? That's the right solution. God's fingerprints are all over this. God has orchestrated it that this baby would be preserved. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. She knew of a nurse that was available. (laughs) Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The sister just happened to know a mother who was looking for a baby boy to nurse. God seems to love irony. The worst terror of your life turned so much on its head that you almost have to laugh at the scenario. You laugh for joy for the God who works deliverance out of death. That baby was placed in the river that was to be his demise, and it proved to be the place of his life. Don't we know a God who turns death backward? We know a God who brings through death life. Won't there be a moment in history future when those who are in Christ, who have fallen asleep in him, are brought to life, and it will be shown that God has worked life through death. The great irony that God uses the enemy of death to bring victory in his name. God always takes things a bit further than you can think. This mom likely just wanted this baby to be saved. But God takes it to the next step because this baby is rescued, which would be an answer to her many prayers, no doubt. But not only is he rescued, he's rescued by the daughter of the very one who issued the edict to have this baby destroyed. And not only is he rescued, and not only is he rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, but now the mom gets to take care of that baby. And not only is this baby rescued, and not only is he rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, not only does the mom get to care for her baby, she gets gets paid to do so from Pharaoh's own purse. Pharaoh is very soon going to have in his household the very child that he would have had destroyed, and that child is going to grow up to be the one who delivers Israel out of the grip of Pharaoh. Do you trust God's providence? 
Do you trust that he's always working? He's always preparing. He's always plotting and planning and executing his plan. And through these events, God provides a deliverer. After a few years, the child is brought back to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter would have gone through the formal adoption ceremony and took Moses to be her son. He's not named yet, but takes this child to be her son. And he officially becomes Pharaoh's, son, or Pharaoh's daughter's son. And she names him Moses. Moses related to the Hebrew word for pulling out, rescuing. And of course, it's appropriate for Moses because he is going to be the one that God uses to pull Israel out by means of crossing a Red Sea. If you trace your finger over the rest of the Bible, you will see several amazing childbirths. And they're all like big, flashing, pointing fingers towards the ultimate birth of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate deliverer, who faced a tyrannical, despotic ruler in Herod who wanted to execute him. But God, in all of that, was raising up a deliverer for his people. Now we have this God who provides a deliverer. But the kind of deliverer that he provides is a deliverer who cares about his people. And that's the second point. God provides a deliverer. God provides a deliverer who cares about his people. Someone who doesn't care about those who need deliverance won't be much of a deliverer. They'll be some sort of mercenary. In the case of Moses, he's in a unique position now because he's a Hebrew living in an Egyptian household. And he's raised, it says in Acts 7.22, that he's instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Moses was living the high life. He had it all at his fingertips. He got to live with the Egyptians. He was not with his Hebrew brethren. He didn't experience the oppression, the hardship, the slavery. And it would be very tempting, I would assume, for him just to remain an Egyptian. That would have been the easy path. He's grown up, it says in verse 11, when Moses had grown up, And he has everything at his disposal. He has it all. He would lack nothing being in Pharaoh's household. He has all the comforts that could possibly be his. You can imagine very easily it'd be tempting to remain an Egyptian. That's his upbringing. He had the riches of Egypt at his hand. He could easily so easily turn his back on the plight of the Israelites. But that wasn't his attitude. It says in verse 11 that when he had grown up, he went out to his people, literally his brothers, and looked on their burdens. Not just a passing look. It wasn't a look where he saw him and said, I can't look anymore. I'll just go back home and ignore that. What I saw, it'd be much easier just to pretend like that never happened. He saw what was happening. He looked intently. 
And he saw among their burdens an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. We get some clarification about this event because we know what happens. Moses goes and intervenes by killing the Egyptian. The same word is used. It says the Egyptian was striking a Hebrew, and then Moses looked this way and that, seeing no one. He struck the Egyptian. It's the same word, Egyptian striking a Hebrew, and then Moses struck an Egyptian. Acts chapter 7 helps us understand this. It says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, 23 through 26, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So the picture that Scripture paints for us is that Moses did indeed have the opportunity to remain with all of the pleasures that Egypt had to offer, but he chose to go and visit his people and turn his back on Egypt and turn his face toward his brothers. He considered reproach greater wealth than treasures of Egypt. That doesn't compute unless you see the world God's ways. You see the world God's way. He was going to experience, Moses was, by this decision that would change his life. He was going to experience the kind of reproach that Christ experienced. And in this moment, as we see this deliverer turned towards his people with care and concern for them, we have yet again another picture of our Christ. How easy would it have been for him to remain in heaven, in the glory of his Father, the worship of angels? He, after all, was perfect, and he looked on his creation who was rebelling against him, but what did he choose to do? Well, he left the glory of heaven and took on the form of a servant. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ looked with, compare, with care and compassion on us, saw our plight, and was willing to come to us. So God provides a deliverer who cares. Third, God provides a deliverer who is rejected by the people that he delivers. God provides a deliverer who is rejected by the people he delivers. Verse 13, the next day after Moses had killed the Egyptian, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you struggle your companion? And this answer is just so quintessential of humanity. You look at somebody who might have just a little bit of authority over you, 
and you say, well, who made you king? And that's what this guy does. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? That's a legitimate question. Because if someone does come having authority, you need to know the source of their authority. And the book of Exodus is going to spend a considerable amount of time showing us that Moses had authority over the Israelites because God had given it to him. It should sound familiar to us. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? They rejected him. Moses seeks to deliver an Israelite from another Israelite, and they reject him. The best commentary on this incident, again, is from the New Testament, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, verses 24 to 29, has Stephen, soon to be martyred, giving a speech that is going to get him killed. And he's telling a stiff-necked people basically how they have been stiff-necked just like their ancestors. In Acts 7.24, describing Moses, he says, And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons." The very deliverer that God was providing was rejected by those he went to rescue. We are not an easy people to help. We resist it. We think we got this. We think, you know, the slavery... Isn't that bad? It would be worse to let somebody help us out of it. We are so resistant to help. John chapter 1, 10 and 11 says of our Christ that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Or Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We don't recognize how much we need a Savior. Have you ever talked to somebody, presented Jesus to them, and they say something along the lines of, no thanks, I'm good, like they're passing up some free sample on a boardwalk. And they don't understand that they're like people dangling by a thread over the edge of a cliff, about to fall a thousand feet to their destruction, and someone comes with a harness and ropes and offers them to be delivered from their plight, and they say, no thanks, I'm good. 
It's really all of us. We are so resistant to help from God in the way that He would provide it, from the person He would provide it through. So Moses flees. Back in Exodus chapter 2, it says that he was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known about what he did to the Egyptian. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses leaves the land that he grew up in, the land that rightly could have been called home to him, and he becomes a sojourner. His home had been Egypt, and now he goes to this land of Midian. He sits down by a well. If you know anything about wells in the Old Testament, they're important places. People find their wife there. (laughs) Moses is there by this well, and along come these seven ladies who are caring for the flock of their father. And they get seemingly chased away by these shepherds. And Moses, because he is this delivering kind of guy, stood up and saved them, waters their flock. This becomes known to their father, and the father invites Moses uh, to come and stay with him. And not only does he get a place to stay, he gets a wife out of the deal. And then he gets a son. And it says that he called his name Gershom. It's related to the Hebrew word for sojourner. And it indicates to us Moses' mindset during this period of his life where he thinks of himself as a sojourner, an exile, an outcast, someone who doesn't really have a homeland anymore. Again, Hebrews 11.26 says of Moses that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You, as you read the book of Exodus, you have to let these arrows point you to Christ. Because when Christ came to dwell among us, he was not welcomed with open arms. He did not come to the place that was his home. He was like an exile and a sojourner, treated with contempt and reviled. rejected by the very people he came to rescue. But this is the kind of deliverance that God brings about, a deliverer who is rejected by the people he came to deliver. Finally, God provides a deliverer before we knew we needed one. God provides a deliverer before we knew we needed one. Although I've been speaking about God throughout this whole text, if you're an observant reader of Scripture, you will have noticed that God has not been mentioned. He's not been identified in this. He's not been part of the story until verse 23. 
But I think that these verses legitimize the interpretation that God's fingerprints are all over this scene. It's like we act as a biblical forensic department and we come to sweep the dust over chapter 2 of Exodus and we find that God's fingerprints are all over the place. But he's remained behind the scenes. And now in verse 23, during those many days while Moses is sojourning in the land of Midian is what it's referring to. The king of Egypt died. That Pharaoh is dead now. But the people of Israel continue to groan because of their slavery. And as they groan, their groanings and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And as this cry comes up to God in heaven, verse 24 gives us these four verbs that describes God's response. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. To hear their groaning. He heard words that were really unintelligible to us, just the groaning of their agony. But he hears them, and he can rightly interpret what the problem is and what the solution would be. He hears the cries of the distressed. He remembered. It's not as though he forgot something. God does not forget and just now remember. For God to remember is to prepare to act on the basis of what he has promised a long time ago. It's used in Genesis 8.1 when the flood was on the earth and Noah and his family are in the ark. It says God remembered Noah. Again, he hadn't forgotten Noah. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. For God to remember is to prepare to act on behalf of someone in order to fulfill a promise made. In this case, in Exodus 2.24, it's a promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of Moses and the Israelites. He promised that he would bring the people up out of Egypt into their own land. He had not forgotten, and he was preparing to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. God heard, he remembered, and he saw. When God sees something, he sees more than what we see. He sees all of the pieces of the puzzle all at once. He sets his gaze on his people. He saw the people of Israel. He saw them in an intimate and personal way. Psalm 34, 15 says that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. If you're keeping track here, you realize that God's ears are attentive. God's memory is attentive. God's eyes are attentive to the people of Israel. If you were to think of some great person of history, an Einstein, an Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Edison, Washington. And you think that you had some relationship with them and you find yourself in a problem and it says of that person regarding you that they heard you, they saw you, they remembered. You think, okay, I've, I've got it good. The Israelites have the God of the universe hearing seeing, and remembering. Watch out, world. You have someone on your side. Then it says, and God knew. 
And God knew what? God knew them. He cared for them. He was aware. Don't you say to somebody who's struggling, I know. I know. God cares. But it's much more when God says it. He is aware and he cares. And the thing that he knew, the thing that he knew is he knows all things. He knows everything. And the reality of this is that God, as he hears their cries, they're groaning for relief from all of this. The reality is that God had started a plan so many years before that was going to bring about their deliverance at this moment in time. Even before their cries had gone up to him, God had been working and preparing a solution to their problem. It's a bit like your house being on fire. And in the panic of the moment, as you're trying to figure out what to do, your phone rings. And you pull out your phone and you look at it, and it says 911. They're calling you. And you say, hello? And they say, we're on our way. Remember that verse in Romans 5? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came for us and lived among his people before they knew they needed him. He didn't see the dilemma and then come up with a plan. He always had the plan. So the illustration should be revised a little bit. It's more like you're dead asleep and your phone rings in the middle of the night and they say, your house is on fire. There's a rescue ladder right outside your window. Climb out. God has been preparing a plan of rescue for you from the beginning of time. He's not coming late to the scene He has been prepared. That famous verse in Scripture that says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know that verse. That verse reflects our salvation. But as you think of that verse, you have to realize that the salvation that you call out for in that moment has already been purchased for you 2,000 years ago. Even before you were born, God had been preparing a path of deliverance for you through his son, Jesus Christ, going to the cross, dying there as the substitute for your sins. And when you call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and you realize what he has done, you realize that 2,000 years ago, God had already paid the price to rescue you from your sin. Our God is a delivering God who provides a deliverer through his providence to people who reject him. But he's been preparing this plan before you even knew you needed a savior. So what shall we do? Well, if you know Christ, it seems appropriate to say, thank you for saving me before I even knew I needed you. And if you don't know Christ, Know that he has already paid the price. You must turn to him in faith and receive what is offered to you in Christ. Realize the debt is totally paid. You can't contribute to your salvation at all. 
God has done it all for you. Turn to him in faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son. 2,000 years have passed, which shows the excellency of your plan all the more because we still need your salvation, and you've already done it for us. And so we praise you for that good gift. Thank you that you are a God who is attentive. You see, you know, you hear, you remember, you keep your promises. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for a deliverer. We are sorry, Father, that we have been so stubborn to receive the help that you give, but thank you for changing our hearts, waking us up to this truth. Lord, may we be ambassadors for the truth that you have given to us to let the world know that there is a Savior that you have provided in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.